son of a bitch. Welcome to the show, everybody. Welcome, welcome. So, um, a lot of stuff that I'm interested in in today's show. I will be talking about the Simone Biles thing. Um, we'll get to that a little bit later. It's still somewhat early, but a little bit later. Uh, I will lead with the uh, January 6th commission and what's going on with that. Um, There's the Daniel Hale story, which of course is completely heartbreaking and uh, it's disturbing, but, you know, it's kind of expected from a government that has persecuted Julian Assange, persecuted Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning, who was locked up for a long time, long time. Um, Then we'll also get to this viral video from More Perfect Union that you have to see about a Frio-Lay worker and how he was just totally tossed to the wolves. Um, This one is is rough. It's rough. I almost feel like I'm not a believer in trigger warnings, but I almost feel like I want to give everybody a trigger warning before this one because it is out there. Update on Nina Turner's race, some foreign policy stuff, Um, I will later on react to another one of my old terrible videos. (laughs) Oh, man, it is rough. It is rough looking at old Kyle stuff. Nobody wants to see the stuff they did a long time ago. I feel like in my case it's even worse, the stuff I did a long time ago, because everything was so public. I mean, I was posting videos in fucking 2008. Like, what do you expect? Anyway, all right, without further ado... Let's get started, and uh, we will do that with the January 6th Commission. So we had, I guess you can say, day one of the January 6th Commission yesterday, and um, there's some stuff that kind of blew up from this commission. There was a hearing where the Democrats had a bunch of the Capitol police officers, and they told their stories. So I want to play you a little montage here of some of the explosive stuff that they said. Take a look. To be honest, I did not recognize my fellow citizens who stormed the Capitol on January 6th or the United States that they claimed to represent. When I was 25 years old and then a sergeant in the Army, I had deployed to Iraq for Operation Iraqi Freedom. From time to time, I volunteered to travel on IED-infested roles to conduct supply missions for U.S. and Allied forces and local Iraqi population as well. But on January 6th, for the first time, I was more afraid to work at the Capitol than my entire deployment to Iraq. In Iraq, we spent their armed violence because we were in a war zone. But nothing in my experience in the Army or as a law enforcement officer prepared me for what we confronted on January 6th. I, too, was being crushed by the rioters. I could feel my, myself losing oxygen and recall thinking to myself, this is how I'm going to die, defending this entrance. One woman in a pink MAGA shirt yelled, you hear that, guys? This voted for Joe Biden. Then the crowd, perhaps around 20 people, joined in screaming, 
Boom. No one had ever, ever called me a while wearing the uniform of a Capitol Police officer. In the days following the attempted insurrection, other black officers shared with me their own stories of racial abuse on January 6th. One officer told me he had never, and in his, his entire 40 years of life, been called a to his face. And that streak ended on January 6th. To my perpetual confusion, I saw the thin blue line flag, a symbol of support for law enforcement more than once, being carried by the terrorists as they ignored our commands and continued to assault us. The accurate sting of CS gas or tear gas and OC spray, which is mace, hung in the air as the terrorists threw their own CS gas, threw our own CS gas canisters back at us and sprayed us with their own OC, either they bought themselves or stole from us. Later I learned at least one of them was spraying us in the face with wasp spray. <laughs> my fellow citizens, including so many of the people I put my life at risk to defend, are downplaying or outright denying what happened. I feel like I went to hell and back to protect them and the people in this room. But too many are now telling me that hell doesn't exist. So there you have it. There you have it. Now, uh, the Democrats are actually taking this a step further, and there's an article out today in The Intercept. Apparently, Nancy Pelosi uh, is using this as a midterm strategy where the Democrats are going to say, these Republicans are really anti-police. They want to defund the police, which actually is a curious strategy because it's not like that wasn't a big part of the Republican messaging in the previous election, and they lost. So... Not sure that's the way to go, but that is something that they're leaning into. At least that's what the report is today coming out of the the intercepts. Now, listen, a lot of this testimony, I mean, the hardcore partisans are going to reject it and dismiss it because that's what hardcore partisans do. And Tucker Carlson was laughing at one of them. Uh, Some of them teared up. And uh, I know Adam Kinzinger, who's Republican who's, uh, you know, basically coxing with the Democrats at this point, at least on this issue, uh, he also sort of teared up and gave what people are calling an emotional testimony. And some of it you can say is over the top, and some of it does appear like there's some acting involved. But, um, you know, you had Tucker and, and others on the right and Newsmax downplaying everything that these officers said and making it seem like, you know, um, this is ridiculous and Literally, Tucker was laughing at, at one of the officers who, who was tearing up. But, I mean, listen, you watch the entire thing, and you tell me what you think of the testimony of all these officers. Uh, some of the stuff they said there was fascinating. So the person who said, I was more scared on January 6th than in Iraq. I mean, I could be a dick and make a point about how we shouldn't have been in Iraq, and nobody should have been in Iraq, so what goes around comes around. But I won't be a dick, and I won't make that point. Um, his argument is we were expecting violent combat in Iraq and we weren't expecting it on January 6th. Now, I mean, but who do you blame for that? That's a separate question. I mean, they really should have been prepared. They really should have been prepared. Uh, There was plenty of chatter on many public forums about what was going to come on January 6th. It was sort of like an open secret in far right circles. So for them to be totally unprepared, again, I don't know how, how far you go up the chain of command to lay blame there, but perhaps everybody should have been a little more prepared because, again, if it was a Black Lives Matter uh, rally, 
then I think everybody would have been more prepared. That, that command would have come from higher up the chain. Uh, then you hear one of them says, I was being crushed by the rioters, and I thought I was going to die. I'm going to show you video in a second, which, you know, sort of bears out that if you were there at the time and you witnessed all of it, you know, it, it was horrifying. It was horrifying. Again, I'll get to video of it in a second. I'm going to, I'm going to play a great video. I think it's from the New Yorker. I'm going to put it on double speed because we've already seen a lot of this stuff and almost all of you have seen a lot of this stuff. And a lot of it is just video of what happened at the riot. And so, you know, double speed works for that. If you want to watch it slower, just slow it down when I cut to that video. Um, and then you have the powerful story everybody's talking about where he says they were calling me the N-word. Um, by the way, some people are just denying it and saying, I don't believe that story. I believe him because, you know, when the mob mentality takes over and you have this group of far right people, you'll see some of the things that they're caught chanting, that the riders are caught chanting in the video, which I'm going to show you. I feel like that's a good indication that for them to call a black officer the N-word is not beyond them. Like one, at one point, they do start chanting when they think the cops are blocking them from getting in the building, because they are, they do start chanting, fuck the blue, fuck the blue. And again, this is from the group that normally says they're, you know, pro-police. And you heard one of them say, I saw the thin blue line flag, and I was puzzled by that. Right, exactly. Um, Everything's conditional. With the far right, everything's conditional. There are no principles. There are no values. Everything is partisan hackery and tribalism. And in that moment, they viewed the police as getting in their way. And so therefore now it's fuck the blue as opposed to we love the boys in blue. So um, there you have it. Now, I want to remind everybody, see, we're having this January 6th commission and, you know, everybody's saying how important it is and how necessary it is. But I want to go ahead and show you, again, this video from The New Yorker came out months ago. We may have played it on the show before. I don't really remember. I've definitely seen it before. Uh, and I was kind of astounded when I saw it. But this is a little long, even on double speed, but I think it's important for everybody to see it so you get the full context of what happened that day. But take a look at this, and then I'm going to come back and tell you my final conclusion on what's going on with this committee. We will stop the steal. Today I will lay out just some of the evidence proving that we won this election, and we won it by a landslide. This was not a close election. And after this, we're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. So I hope Mike has the courage to do what he has to do. Hey, what? Are you kidding me? 
And if you don't fight right now, you're not going to have a country anymore. <laughs>
such a thing happens where they could take it away from all of us, from me, from you, from our country. This was a fraudulent election, but we can't play into the hands of these people. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. You've seen what happens. You've seen the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel. But go home and go home in peace. <laughs> tweeted the following, these are the things and events that happen when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away from the great patriots who have been badly and unfairly treated for so long. Go home with love and in peace. Remember this day forever. So that's powerful. And I remember the first time I saw that, I was like, oh, it was even worse than I thought it was. That was my reaction. So a few things. It is definitely fair to call it a riot. That looks like a riot to me. I think it's definitely fair to call it an attempted insurrection. Some people have said that language is over the top and and doesn't really fit. I disagree. It does look like an attempted insurrection to me. Um, Now, I refer to it as a diet coup, and the reason I call it a diet coup is not to downplay the severity of it, but to point out that there was zero organization with high-ranking officials, so it was doomed to failure from the jump. Any serious coup attempt, it's like you have to have some people inside the house. You have to have some connection to a high-level person who can, you know, um, make it so that there's a chance of success. If it's effectively a bunch of yahoos who are trying to do it from the outside, it's doomed to failure from the beginning. Now, I'm happy it was doomed to failure from the beginning, but I do think you should maybe put it in a slightly different category than um, a coup. So, and that's, again, that's not to downplay anything that Trump said or did there, because Trump very clearly egged them on. And I think that video makes it crystal clear. And he protected his ass at the end by speaking out of both sides of his mouth. Even though his message was clear, he also said, hey, go home and go home in peace. You know, he called them very special people, and he was saying all the positive things about them and saying, how can they get away with taking away from this from us? But then he did also say, go home and go home in peace. I think he covered his ass just enough to make the case, I don't even know what you're talking about. And so anything that would happen in a court of law, he'd be able to get off because he could point to the parts where he's like, go home and go home in peace. Um, So the problem there is now Trump's out of office, so you can't impeach him. Um, There's no, I don't know what sort of crimes they could bring him up on where he would be found guilty So the only course of action that was left that should have been taken, but it wasn't, is they had the ability to ban Trump from future elections right then and there. And they didn't use that because the Republicans were cucked by Trump and you would have needed some Republican votes and they didn't do it. So now we're effectively right back to square one. And this guy who did egg on a a attempted insurrection This guy has the ability, if he wants to, to jump right back into the race in 2024 and potentially win, especially depending on who his opponent is. So this is terrible all around. I will also say this, though, and this is a point that needs to be stressed. 
there should be no new Patriot Act-style degradation of our rights in the wake of January 6th. Because this is exactly what happened after 9-11. And you do have a bunch of Democrats comparing this to 9-11, which I don't think is a fair comparison. Just look at the death count. But no attempt to further degrade our rights because the last time something with this kind of a reaction happened, you had the Patriot Act and you had NSA spying and you had um, torture as a matter of policy. And this is a very common thing. A reaction to something like this is to let's fund our intelligence agencies more. Let's fund the police much more. Let's pass a bill that gives them even more powers. And bottom line is this. They already have all of the power that they need. And here's what I'm in favor of and what you should be in favor of, too. Prosecute everybody who committed crimes there to the fullest extent of the law. And there's a lot of them. And by the way, they're already doing that. There are people who are already getting sentenced for roles that they played on January 6th. And I'm happy about that. So anybody who committed crimes, and there's a lot of video evidence and otherwise, and go after them. Take them down. And they are doing that. And that's what needs to be done. Now, the final point is, I don't know why everybody's pretending we don't know exactly what happened on January 6th. There's video evidence of it out the wazoo. We know exactly what happened on January 6th. It's not a question. It's not up in the air. It's not open to, you know, uh, radically different interpretations. You had a president who was egging on his supporters to, uh, to do a riot and to do an attempted takeover of the government, however ineffectual and pathetic the attempt was. That's what happened. And... We see it all in front of us. So forgive me for being a dick here, but what's the point of an investigation when we know exactly what happened, we know who's guilty of what, and there are lawsuits happening right now as a result of it, and there are people going to prison right now as a result of what they did. Now, again, I'm not saying this to downplay the severity of the event. I think it was very serious. But here's the point that very few people are bringing up, and almost nobody's bringing up. There was leaked audio of Joe Manchin that came out uh, in mid-June, and this is credit to Lee Fong and Ryan Grimm. Um, here's the headline of the piece: Leaked audio of Senator Joe Manchin calls. Uh, excuse me. Leaked audio of Senator Joe Manchin call with billionaire donors provides a rare glimpse of deal making on filibuster and January 6th commission. Manchin urged big money donors with no labels. That's a you know corporate corporatist group to talk to Senator Roy Blunt about flipping his vote on the commission in order to save the filibuster. Okay, do you understand that? The argument from Manchin is, listen, guys, we got a rabid Democratic base. We got these lefties who are demanding all sorts of shit. They want a $15 minimum wage. They want a public option. They want universal basic income. They want the government to actually represent them we need to give them something. You need to throw them a bone. You need to get them off our ass. They're talking about overthrowing or changing the filibuster, getting rid of the filibuster, and they're not going to stop until something gets done, whether it's abolishing the filibuster, reforming it to the talking filibuster, giving the Democrats many more cracks at reconciliation, um, coming up with rules that certain issues the filibuster doesn't apply. They're fighting, and they're organized, and they're angry. 
and we need to do something to divert their attention. We need to do something where we throw them a bone. And his argument to these billionaire donors was, for the love of God, explain to the Republicans, to, if they support a January 6th commission, we could just have this theater of a January 6th commission, and guess what? Everybody's attention is diverted, and nobody's talking about the $15 minimum wage, and nobody's talking about the public option, and nobody's talking about more COVID relief checks, and nobody's talking about any of the policies that were not getting implemented because the filibuster is there. So he very openly and clearly says we need a diversion to get the Democratic base off of our ass and to save the filibuster. And if you do a January 6th commission, it's theater, but give the people their theater, and guess what? Then people won't be pushing us on the filibuster anymore, and it is what it is. And in other words, deflect the conversation back to the culture war, because this is a culture war issue, keep it on the culture war, and then we don't have to do any of the policies that you know, we campaigned on and said we would do. Now, I want to be clear about something. This is not Kyle Kalinske saying this. This is Joe Manchin saying this in leaked audio with billionaire donors. It's very clear. What he's saying, the context of what he's saying is very clear. Hey, you've got to give in on the January 6th commission. Billionaire donors, go tell the Republicans if they don't give in on this, then there is a chance that some changes are going to happen with the filibuster, and there is a chance that more Democratic legislation is going to get through. And Joe Manchin's the guy who 60% voted with Trump when Trump was in office. So this is a warning to them saying, I don't, even, I don't want the filibuster to be gone. I don't want a lot of these Democratic priorities. So for the love of God, Republicans, give in, let's have the January 6th commission, and then we can deflect the entire conversation. And that's exactly what's happening right now. Again, I want to be clear. I'm not by any stretch of the imagination trying to downplay what happened on January 6th. I think it's fair to call it a riot. I think it's fair to call it an attempted insurrection. I think Trump egged them on. Um, he did speak out of both sides of his mouth, but he definitely egged them on. You saw the video. You see how serious it was. You know, I have eyes. I see what that was. I, I don't want to downplay that. It's very severe. But we also know exactly what happened. And people are, you know, being charged and going to prison right now. So go after everybody who committed crimes. I'm 100% in favor of that. But don't do any new Patriot Act shit. Don't further degrade anybody's rights. Um, we definitely don't need to do that. And let's also understand... If we know what happened, then why are we studying it further and doing an investigation? And the answer really is simple. They want theater to distract from having to deliver on substantive stuff. Now, you might think that sounds conspiratorial. You might think I'm downplaying the election or, or what happened on January 6th. Excuse me. All I can say is I'm not doing that. I see the video. It was genuinely horrific. Um, so I'm not downplaying the severity of it. I think it's really serious. But it is also true we know exactly what happened, and when you know what happened, you don't need an investigation, and you don't need further study, and you don't need to suck all the air out of the room and change the political discourse for however long this committee goes on. But it is now a convenient way to not talk about the filibuster, not talk about any of the substantive policies, that the Democrats ran on, that they should be fighting for right now. And it's mighty convenient for the powerful, isn't it? So that's where I am on this thing. Um, we had our testimony. They verified exactly how, how bad it was. You know, these Capitol officers are basically saying, yeah, 
what it looked like on the video was what it was like in real life. I'm glad we got their stuff on the record, without a doubt. But also, I don't know how long this thing goes on, but if it goes on for a really long time, and it's the only thing that the media is talking about and the only thing the political junkies are talking about, that's not good. That's not good, because then the chances of the filibuster being gone and us getting real policy change to help the American people get slimmer and slimmer and slimmer and slimmer. So some of you might say I'm overly skeptical or cynical or whatever. I don't know how else to say it other than, yet again, final time. It's not me saying it. It's Joe Manchin saying it. Joe Manchin said it in leaked audio with billionaire donors, saying if we do this January 6th commission, we can sort of get away without changing the filibuster. We could get away without, you know, doing $15 minimum wage and public option and all these other proposals that the Democratic base desperately wants and that the American people desperately want. So there you have it. That video was horrific. What happened on January 6th was horrific. I'm glad that people are going to prison as a result of it. Um, you know, obviously what happened to those officers is terrible. It's, it was bad. This was bad. And Trump is definitely at least partly responsible for it. All terrible. But hopefully this thing gets wrapped up quickly and we can get back to legislating for the people and we can get back to focusing on the things that matter because right now all you see is hardcore Democrats go into their own corner on this January 6th thing and hardcore Republicans go into their own corner on this January 6th thing and they're having the predictable arguments that you knew they were going to have and we're right back on the field of the culture war as opposed to the field of substantively improving your life. Okay, next. So this story is absolutely heartbreaking. And I have to say, I'm a little disappointed in myself for not knowing about this sooner. I should have known about this sooner. I should have known this guy's name. I should have seen stories on this. But I haven't seen any stories on this until yesterday. So American hero drone whistleblower Daniel Hale was sentenced to almost four years in prison. Take a look at this. A whistleblower who leaked top secret information about America's drone warfare program has been sentenced to 45 months in federal prison. Daniel Hale, who's 33 years old, who formerly worked as an intelligence analyst for the U.S. Air Force, pled guilty in March to retaining and transmitting national defense information. He was sentenced in U.S. District Court in Alexandria, Virginia, by Judge Liam O'Grady on Tuesday. In 2014, Hale leaked more than 150 pages of classified material to a journalist, revealing details about how the government's unmanned aerial vehicle operations, about, excuse me, revealing details about the government's unmanned aerial vehicle operations. Hale took the documents from the National uh, Geospatial Intelligence Agency, where he was working as a contractor at the time. While it has never been officially admitted, political reports that the details about Hale's activities and the records he leaked make clear that the reporter was Jeremy Scahill of The Intercept. Documents that Hale leaked were subsequently cited in the drone papers, an investigation by the outlet into the government's activities. Scahill also about drone warfare, in which he elaborated on the findings. I think they have a typo in there. Hale later said that guilt over his own participation in drone strikes overseas had compelled him to come forward. Charging Hale under the Espionage Act, federal prosecutors 
had previously sought a maximum punishment for him, which would have netted him 11 years behind bars. Political rights that Hale appeared choked up through parts of Tuesday's judicial proceedings, but showed no remorse about his disclosures. Instead, he expressed regret about having played a part in America's drone program. Quote, here's what he said. I am here because I stole something that was never mine to take. Precious human life. For that, I was compensated and given a medal, Hale said. I couldn't keep living in a world in which people pretended that things weren't happening that were. Please, Your Honor, forgive me for taking papers instead of human lives. Oh. Oh. Oh, that hurts. That's a gut punch. So do you understand what he's saying? I I guess he was a drone operator. And so he had access to the information about what was going on with the U.S. drone program. And he got a medal for operating the drones and effectively killing civilians. And what we learned because of his leaks, it's the fact that I often cite and many others often cite. The, if there was a 90% civilian drone death rate. 90% of the time with the drones, we were killing civilians. We were killing the wrong people. He's the one who leaked the internal documents, which showed that to be the case. He's the one who did it. He got a medal when he was pressing the button and killing Civilians, that's what sounds like here, right? And then when he leaked the papers that showed the facts of what was going on, that's when they threw the book at him. And now he's going to prison for almost four years because he had a conscience and he wanted to leak to a journalist who would show it to the American people what was really happening. Oh, my God. Oh, this is heartbreaking. You know... We know, we owe a lot to Daniel Hale, because he showed us how all of the things we're told about how, oh, everything is like laser-guided precision, and we make sure we could hit a mosquito from, you know, thousands of feet in the air. My ass cheeks, you can. It's nonsense. It's all nonsense. And Daniel Hale's, the reason we know that. We also learned, I believe it's from his leak, we also learned about the different kinds of drone strikes. Um, there's signature strikes, which is, I think, when they know who it is. There's uh, double taps, and then there's one other where they don't know who it is, but they guess they got it right. Double tap is exactly what it sounds like. You strike, and then you circle around, and you attack the first responders who are getting there. Now, oftentimes, the first responders are first responders, and, and double tap was standard operating procedure in many drone strikes. So just totally ruthless war crimes. And Daniel Hale blew the whistle on all this, blew the whistle on the flimsy evidence we often use to decide to call a drone strike. You know, the signature strike where they think they know who it is, oftentimes it's just based off cell phone data or something like that. And you, you have, you'll have five or six people in the room with this one person who, They nominally want to go after, and then they're like, yeah, press the button. So we kill the first responders oftentimes. I wish I could remember the name, not signature strike, but there's one other that uh, meant we don't really know if it's the person, but we think it's the person, and so we're going to press the button anyway. That's another thing that we learned. All of the, the safeguards that were there were kind of bullshit. And guess what? Under the Trump administration, it got even worse because they removed whatever safeguards were there. Whatever rules were there, 
Trump got rid of them. And Trump got rid of any sort of like document keeping on what was going on with the drone program. You know, I think, I don't know the timeline of this, but I think what happened was when this information was released, it sort of forced the Obama administration's hand. And so they, you know, came up with more rules and, and procedures and things of that nature. And then when Trump came in, he was like, yeah, who, who are we kidding? We're not abiding by this anyway, nor should we. Let's get rid of it. Let's get rid of it. So it's 90% civilian death rate under Obama. I'm sure it was the same, if not more, under Trump, because there were even fewer rules that they were abiding by in his term. And by the way, just so everybody understands, this is another fact that's rarely brought up. Uh, Donald Trump's first military act as president in 2017 killed a um, seven-year-old American girl in a botched raid in Yemen. People don't know about that. Anyway, I digress from that point. This guy's a hero. This guy is right up there with Julian Assange. This guy is right up there with Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden. It really says so much about the system, doesn't it? When it came to Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning, remember, they showed the American people a video of U.S. soldiers killing somebody, killing a civilian, and then bombing the first responders. This wasn't with a drone. This was with a conventional military plane. And they were laughing about it. And so Chelsea Manning had a conscience, gave it to Julian Assange. Julian Assange released it. They have been persecuted relentlessly. And the people who actually committed the crimes and killed innocent people and laughed about it, no justice. They haven't spent a day behind bars. They weren't brought up on any charges. Daniel Hale got a medal when he was killing innocent people. When he exposed and showed the American people that the drone program was killing innocent people, that's when they went after him, and now he's spending almost four years in prison. Again, they're using the Espionage Act. If I'm not mistaken, and the reason I know this is because of the case with Snowden, if I'm not mistaken, I think the Espionage Act makes it so that you can't even make a public good defense. It's an old, outdated, authoritarian law. And they say, you, you're not even allowed to bring up I needed to release this for the public good. Snowden can't even bring up, hey, it was my leaks that showed that all Americans are being spied on. Innocent Americans are being spied on. And that's a wanton violation of their protection from unreasonable search and seizure. What the government is doing is unconstitutional and illegal. I'm just showing that it's unconstitutional and illegal. He's not allowed to bring that up. He can't say that. And by the same token, I guess Daniel Hale couldn't make that case too. Hey, isn't it, shouldn't the American people know that their tax money is funding a drone program where 90% of the people being killed are innocent. Government says you can't bring that up. Or if he was allowed to bring it up, they said, don't care. You technically broke the law by releasing that classified information. What's a bigger violation of the law in your opinion? Massacring innocent people at a very high clip or releasing classified information about killing innocent people. You tell me. American hero. Everybody needs to know Daniel Hale's name. He needs to be right up there with Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange. Um, These are people who have a conscience who are standing up to decrepit, rotten, disgusting criminal systems. And for that, their lives get ruined. I'm not judging this kindly now. I know none of you are, but you bet your ass 
history is not going to judge the government kindly on this. This is imperialistic shit right here. And I don't even think it'll be that long in the future before everybody realizes just how broken the system is and just how much we should be building statues to guys like Daniel Hale. So he burst the fairy tale. And that's why they have to go after him ruthlessly and relentlessly. He let everybody know this nonsense you're taught about American exceptionalism and we're the good guys and we always mean well and, you know, we're so careful about making sure we only go after the right people. He showed that's all nonsense and that's all a fairy tale and that's all bullshit. And when the illusion is gone, there's nothing there but naked barbarism. And so... Now the system is doing everything it can to protect itself from legitimate scrutiny. And it's absolutely grotesque. All right, next. The story that everybody is talking about today is Simone Biles. So Simone Biles um, dropped out of a team event in the Olympics. And she basically cited mental health reasons. Actually, let me pause here and just give you what the story says on this. There's more to life than just gymnastics, Biles told reporters. It's very unfortunate that it happened at this stage because I definitely wanted it to go a little bit better. Take it one day at a time, and we're going to see how the rest goes. The 24-year-old gymnast, quote, will be assessed daily to determine medical clearance for future competitions, according to the New York Post, adding that her departure was initially listed as an unspecified medical issue. So people thought she was physically injured, and then it came out eventually. She says, no, it's, I, I'm basically mentally injured. I have a mental health issue, and I have to address it. Quote, we're going to take it a day at a time and see what happens, she said. I have to focus on my mental health. I just don't trust myself as much anymore. I don't know if it's age. I'm just more nervous when I do gymnastics. I feel like I'm also not having as much fun. And I know this Olympic Games, I wanted it to be for myself. I'm still doing it for other people. While she did leave the team's competition, Biles is expected to compete in the all-around competition, which begins on Thursday, and the four gold medalists uh, will compete as an individual and other apparatus events. Quote, physically, I feel good. I'm in shape, Biles told NBC's uh, Hoda Kudub. Emotionally, that kind of varies on the time and the moment. Coming here to the Olympics and being the head of, excuse me, the head star of the Olympics is not an easy feat. So we're just trying to take it one day at a time, and we'll see. So people are comparing this to what happened with Naomi Osaka recently where she was like, she was told she has to deal with the media. And then she was like, I'd rather just not compete in this major than deal with the media. And so she was like, I'm not going to compete in the, in the major. And she basically said, I have extreme social anxiety and mental health issues and I simply can't do it and I don't want to do it. And so she pulled out. Um, there's actually been a number of examples of this fairly recently when it comes to golf and the PGA Tour, this guy by the name of something Wolf, Matt Wolf, and he's a young guy, just got on tour. He basically came out and said, for five months I was massively depressed, had severe anxiety, was feeling really nihilistic, didn't think any of it was worth it, and didn't know what to do to dig myself out of the hole. And he basically took a bunch of time off, I think. Um, Bubba Watson's another guy who says, oh, I have you know, mental health issues and I've been struggling with it, and these people are now coming out and talking about this. Now, What I find so fascinating about the conversation going on here is how polarized it is. So if you turn on um, a lot of the sports talk 
channels, um, if you turn on the right-wing commentary, man, they are very clear about their opinion. And their opinion is, you got to shut up, you got to suck it up, this is what a warrior does, you go out there and you fight. Um, and, I mean, there are, we can point to countless examples. Michael Jordan, when he had the flu, and he played through the flu, and legendary performance. Tiger Woods in 2008 won the U.S. Open on a broken leg, literally. And these are, you know, these are things that, this is what a legend is made of. This is what GOAT status comes from. Um, and, you know, there is something to be said about that mindset, where the people who look at adversity see a mountain that it's impossible to climb, and they're like, fuck it, we got to try to climb it. And then they try. Sometimes you get there and sometimes you don't. But, you know, the search for meaning and purpose is found in the process of waging the fight even when it feels like it's impossible to wage the fight. So I actually have very, very mixed feelings on this, and I want to lay them out, and I'm curious what everybody else thinks. Because, yes, on the one hand, there is something that's super appealing about that, you know, almost like one person versus the world dynamic, where it's like, I don't care what the fuck gets in my way. I have a one-track mind. I'm going to dedicate myself and then rededicate myself and then fight on no matter what the hell gets in my way. I'm not stopping. I'm not stopping. I think there's something that human beings look at in that, and it's appealing. It, it, it makes us have admiration, and we view it as inspirational. Because then we think, well, broken leg didn't stop him from winning the U.S. Open. Well, what the fuck? So, you know, I have a tiny headache, and... I don't want to do my job now. So there's definitely something to say about that. And another point that the conservative commentators are making is like, how would everybody react if this was LeBron James and it was the NBA Finals? If LeBron James came out and was like, I don't want to play today. I have mental health issues that I need to address, and I just can't do it, so I'm not going to do it. How would people react? There may be a, a gender difference in the sense that it is very possible that people would look at the LeBron situation and sort of be like, you kidding me? Step up. What are you talking about? Uh, but for Simone Biles, now this is the other reaction. The other reaction is, seen this a lot in what I would call like polite society. So like the non-conservative, respectable civility liberal outlets, their, their take is the polar opposite of the conservatives. And their take is like, this is courageous and this is brave for Simone Biles to do this. And so the reason why I say I'm split is for this reason. There is something that's like uniquely more honest about doing what she's doing. Whether or not you like it is irrelevant. Just like with the Naomi Osaka thing, just like with Simone Biles, this is the first time maybe in history, this era is the first era maybe in history, that you have athletes who are just being open and honest about what they're feeling. And there is something to be said for truth for the sake of truth, that in the past it would have been like, hey, suck it up and, and push that down. But now it's like, no, I'm going to tell you guys exactly what I'm thinking and exactly what I'm feeling. And, you know, sort of got a creditor for that. The other thing is the Olympics are kind of a scam. Tim Dillon made this point on Twitter. The Olympics are a giant scam, really. And so if somebody says, I don't want to play in your stupid fucking shitty scam anymore, can you really blame them? She's a person. She has the right to do whatever the fuck she wants to do. And, you know, I, again, I don't think these people are getting paid for this. Maybe the issue with Simone Biles is different. I don't know if maybe she has some sponsorship deals or whatever. I don't know. But the Olympics specifically, I don't think they pay anybody. And I do think the Olympics is a giant scam. 
So if she's like, hey, I want to tap out of this giant scam, I don't see why anybody could be mad at her. Um, the other points that I think are interesting is nobody's talking about the part of her commentary. Now, I don't know if it was listed in this article that I just read to you guys, but I saw her full commentary in the press conference afterwards. And she also says that basically, like, I would have fucked it up and I would have ruined it for them and I couldn't live with myself if I did that. Funny enough, nobody's really talking about that part of the commentary. They're only talking about the mental health part of the commentary. Now, granted, she is sort of contradicting herself a little bit. It's like, well, hold on. Are you pulling out for your own mental health or are you pulling out because you think you're going to fuck it up and so you care more for the team and you're doing it to protect the team? Which is it? I mean, I guess she could say, hey, it's both things. But it's funny how the media and everybody's talking about just one part of that, the mental health part of it. If you look at her full commentary in the press conference, she does basically say, listen, when I used to do this, it was easy. It was smooth. We'd have a great practice in the morning. She always naps before these competitions. I would nap. I'd sleep just fine. I'd wake up. I'd go to do these things. And I wouldn't be nervous. And I'd nail it every time. And what happened this day is we had an okay workout in the morning. And then I went to take a nap. Could barely sleep at all. Then, you know, we went to, um, you know, the stadium. And for a brief period, I felt like I had calmed myself. But the second we walked out there, I knew, hey, something's off here. And I'm going to fuck up. And I don't want to ruin it for these girls. And so that's another part of the commentary that nobody's talking about. And I don't know why nobody's talking about that, because that's definitely relevant to the conversation. So, um, I mean, she says, I don't trust myself as much anymore. I don't know if it's age. I'm just more nervous when I do gymnastics. And then the other point is, she says, she basically says, I don't even really like doing this anymore which is kind of heartbreaking, but listen, that is ruthlessly honest. As human beings, we all like the idea of seeing somebody who's a monster and an expert and the best in the world at any one individual thing. And again, we saw that with Michael Jordan. We saw that with Tiger Woods. Tiger's actually a great example because there were articles that came out that exposed how during like the peak of his powers, 2007, 2008, he was seriously considering leaving the PGA Tour to become a Navy SEAL. He wanted to follow in his dad's footsteps in the military. And he was training with Navy SEALs at one point. And he hurt his knee and had other injuries as a result of the hardcore training that he was doing. But he was this close. In fact, there may have been times he said it to his caddy and his, his, his confidant, that I, I don't want to do this anymore, and I'm out. And... So again, the idea of somebody who is a robot, who does have that one-track mind, who is a warrior for one thing and they love every second of it, that's what we like to see. But the fact of the matter is, that's not the way the real world works. It's a lot more complex than that. And people's lives are difficult and complicated. And you want to know a good way to make yourself go fucking crazy? Do one thing over and over and over and over for like a decade or more. Now, when you see the, the finished product and they nail it, you're like, oh, my God, that's incredible. I want to do that. Do you really fucking want to do that? Do you want to spend every waking moment for a decade or more dedicated to one thing? You don't think that by, like, year three, three and a half, you're like, I sort of fucking hate this now. Because most people would sort of fucking hate it. And so I think one of the problems is that Simone Biles is sort of bursting the fairy tale bubble for people where – 
she's basically saying, like, what you think this shit is, it is not. It is not. It's actually a nightmare. And it's actually miserable. And I don't even like it anymore. I don't even like it anymore. So, I mean, those are some of my thoughts on this. Uh, really, I'm, I'm all over the place. But the other point I want to make is maybe it's not even true about the LeBron James thing. Like, maybe it is true that if LeBron were to say, I can't play in this game because I have severe mental health struggles, and what am I going to do? Maybe it is true that we're at the point now where polite society would be like, hey, what do you want to – can't go after him. He's telling you what the issue is, and he's, tell, he's being upfront about it, and you can't force somebody to do something. I think that there is – anybody who's dealt with, like, depression, anxiety, or PTSD, or a serious mental health issue, I think they're going to be more um, sympathetic to Simone Biles here. Because, I mean, sometimes you just can't bring yourself to do some shit, no matter what. And to have people on the outside sort of harshly judge that, it's like, what the fuck do you know? Like, who the fuck are you? What do you know? What do you know? You have no idea what any individual is going through at any given moment. You have no idea. None. None. So, I think that's also the case. So, me, overall, listen, I... I don't know what I believe on it. I don't know. I mean, she's an adult. She's an individual. She can do whatever she wants. And clearly she did what she wanted. And maybe there is something that is courageous in that because she, she did this, had to know that, like, at least half the country was going to be like, fuck you, fuck you, you selfish bitch. She had to know that was going to happen. And maybe to do that, knowing that blowback would come, maybe that is kind of brave. Maybe that is courageous. But there's definitely strong argument on the other side that, no, the definition of Courage and bravery is like, even when you don't want to do it, you sort of chin up, chest out, and go forward and plow through it and do the best that you can. And then afterwards, you'll get a feeling of relief and you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, hey, I tried, you know? So I don't know. I don't know what I believe on this. I know she has the right to do whatever she wants to do. I know the Olympics are a scam. And I know that it's hard to judge as an outsider what any individual is going through. So on the one hand, I respect it and more power to her. Um, But on the other hand, yes, I still have that thing in my brain where I do have next level admiration and respect for somebody who sort of says, hey, I'm going to stop at nothing to get this shit done. I don't care what pains I have. Kobe Bryant, you kidding me? Putting a team on his back and getting them into the playoffs when he had like no help and ruptured his Achilles in in a heroic effort to keep them in it. Like, I look at that and I'm like, damn, now that's amazing. Kobe very famously came out and said a number of times, if I had injuries, I would always play through them. And one of the things he said is, well, it's not really about me. It's about there's a seven-year-old kid in the audience who's never seen Kobe Bryant play before, and I'm not going to give him a half-assed effort or sit out. I'm going to fight through it. I'm going to play as hard as I can. I mean, when I hear that, I think that's courage and that's bravery. And that's amazing. But Kobe was also lucky in this sense. He always felt like he loved basketball every waking second. So that's different if Simone Biles sort of doesn't like gymnastics now. You know what I'm saying? So I can't judge it. She could do whatever she wants to do. But I don't think I'll ever be able to drill the thing out of my head where I look at the people who soldier on and say utmost respect to them. And because, again, that's what legends are made of. That's what heroes are made of. And... That fact doesn't change because, one, 
GOAT decided, hey, I have to tap out for a little bit here. But we'll see. We'll see what she ends up doing in the individual thing. Um, the, the team event, the Americans still got silver. So, and, and again, Simone thinks, hey, if I was in, I probably would have fucked it up for them worse. Who knows? Who knows? But as you can tell, I'm very conflicted on this. I'm very curious what everybody thinks. I'm actually, I will say this. I'm most surprised that not more people feel like I feel about it, where they kind of see everything here. Um, everything I've seen is hyper-polarized. And it is sort of a partisan divide, too. Most people on the right are like, how dare you? This is ridiculous. And most people on the left are like, hey, credit to her. This is actually brave, and um, we need to respect mental health issues and sort of destigmatize it. So I'll leave it up to you guys. Now you know what I think on it. Okay. Now, should I take a break now or should I jump right into, let me do one more and then I'll take a break. So um, you had a segment on CNN here where some truth got out, and Trump was called a war criminal. And uh, what's interesting is the over-the-top reaction from Brian Stelter. I find myself, Carl, after a week of full of Trump delusion headlines, wondering where we are heading as a country. Uh, where do you see us heading? Well, I think we need to slow down a bit and deconstruct some of the things that, that you've just uh, laid out there. The first thing is I'm not a psychiatrist, uh, and uh, God knows uh, all of us may have a degree of narcissism, but when you're talking about Trump, we're obviously talking about a kind of delusional madness, such as General Milley was talking about, uh, that is on a scale and a scope that we have never experienced uh, in an American president in our history. I think we need to calmly step back and maybe look at Trump in a different context. He is America's, our own American war criminal uh, of, a, of a kind we've never experienced before. This you, just said he war, has done you just said war criminal. What do you mean, do? war criminal? I did. Well, in, in international law, there have been, quote, crimes against humanity. I think what we're talking about, Trump's crime. As a, as a war, an American war criminal in his own country that he has perpetrated upon our people, including the tens of thousands of people who died because of his homicidal negligence in the pandemic, putting his own electoral interests above the health of our people as they were slaughtered in this pandemic, looking at his actions in terms of fomenting a coup to hold on to office in which the head of the American military, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, has now compared Trump, not the press, not reporters comparing Trump 
to Hitler, but rather the head of the American military comparing him and his movement to brown shirts, to the Reichstag fire. This is a huge wake-up call to this country when General Milley, the head of the American military, has said this. And it fits as a piece with something so extraordinary in our history. It's not political. Trump is not just political. He transcends the political, and we need to start looking at his crimes in that context. You're going to get heat for talking about war crimes, because there's, you know, it's not as if the ICC is setting up a panel or anything, taking any action. I, 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 I want to be careful. Oh, immediately cucked. The ICC should do that. They should do that. As Noam Chomsky famously said, if the Nuremberg Laws were upheld, every post-World War II American president would have been hanged. And that is still true to this day. And it's amazing that Brian Stelter is on CNN and he doesn't know that or he does know that, but he lies about it. It's either ignorance or stupidity or lies because this isn't a debatable question. Now, by the way, uh, Bernstein's answer there was terrible because he says, oh, he's a war criminal. Then he says he's a war criminal in his own country because of COVID deaths. There was homicidal negligence. No, 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 no. Don't redefine war crime for that. He's a war criminal in the traditional sense. His very first approved raid as president was a raid that Obama refused to approve because there was very terrible evidence for it. It's a raid in Yemen that ended up killing a seven-year-old American girl. An American girl was killed with no due process, with no trial. She was seven. I'd say that's a war crime. You know what else is a war crime? illegally and unconstitutionally assassinating Qasem Soleimani. There was no declaration of war against Iran. There was no declaration of war or any approval or any process or any steps. Just willy-nilly decided to assassinate a top Iranian commander. You can't do that. If, if Iran willy-nilly decided to assassinate a top American commander, would we be like, that's cool, that's not illegal. Of course it's illegal. What are you talking about? And the list goes on and on. Trump famously got rid of the few rules and guardrails when it came to the drone war. Now, it was already illegal because we're droning in countries where there is no declaration of war, like Somalia, for example. But Trump got rid of all the rules. Obama had a 90% civilian death rate. Trump probably had worse, or maybe not a worse, worse as a percentage, but worse in terms of he increased the bombing. He increased drone strikes by 432% over the Obama administration. These things are war crimes. These things are war crimes. Like, the war crimes are war crimes. Look at what happened with Iran. You want to talk about the International Criminal Court? The International Criminal Court said, the U.S. needs to stop sanctioning the medicine going into Iran. And the U.S. said, LOL, bro, not happening. And then we pulled out of the court and started chastising them and continued to sanction medicine going into Iran. And people died as a result of it. We have criminal sanctions on Venezuela, for example. We have a, a, a criminal embargo on Cuba. He's, a war he's absolutely a war criminal, but of course Bernstein brings up none of that because to a lot of liberal elites, people overseas just don't count. Um, he brings up COVID deaths. Now, COVID deaths are horrible, and there was homicidal negligence, but it's not a war crime. 
It's not a war crime. It's not the same thing. It's just a different category. So, uh, terrible answer, but imagine being Brian Stelter. You work in news for a living, and you're, like, apoplectic at the idea of Trump being called a war criminal. And by the way, just so we're clear, they're trying to make it sound like, oh, Trump is uniquely bad and that he's an American war criminal. Again, every post-World War II president is a war criminal. Every single one. So, look at Obama. I just told you, 90% civilian uh, death rate. He also, with the drones, he also killed Abdul Rahman al-Awlaki. That's a 16-year-old American boy. And when they killed him with a drone, they then turned around and said, well, he should have had a better father. Because his father may have been a terrorist. Anwar al-Awlaki. Imagine saying that. What, do we assassinate people based on the crimes of their parents? This is an American. No due process, no trial, no nothing. They killed him. They blew him up with a sky predator. That's a war crime. That's a war crime. I mean, we don't even need to get into George W. Bush. George W. Bush is probably worse than Trump, even though it's by a little bit. He probably is worse than Trump. Started the war in Iraq, started the war in Afghanistan, uh, started torture, started the illegal NSA spying on all Americans. And, and so he's a war criminal for sure, an illegal war based on lies that killed hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians. But then that leads me to my final point, which is, they make the comparison, Trump's like Hitler or the brown shirts. This is what's so annoying about corporate media is that, so they should be criticizing Trump because that's substantive. But the way they criticize him is shitty. Again, they didn't make the actual points about how he's a war criminal. And then they're also like needlessly hyperbolic. That makes people go like, I don't know about that one, man. I mean, I know Trump is terrible, but Hitler? Hitler. And so, you know, again, I would say that if you look at their records objectively, I think Bush was a little worse than Trump. So does that mean Bush is like super Hitler? It's just, just do me a favor, only invoke the, the Hitler and Nazi analogies in like the rarest of rare circumstances. Because they do throw it around willy-nilly, and they just dislike Trump, so they throw it around for him like it's nothing. But anyway, um, man, it's so pathetic that he was like outraged at the idea of Trump being a war criminal. Of course he's a fucking war criminal. Of course Obama's a war criminal. Of course Bush is a war criminal. And anybody who follows this stuff who doesn't have the mind of a toddler can admit that. All right, let me take a break. When we come back, still got a lot more to get to. Stay right there.
All right, y'all. I am back in this beach. Okay, I am here. Let's keep it moving. Time for you to get your heart broken. This is this is rough. We are about to see, we are about to hear is rough. Here we go. More Perfect Union is continuing to put out some incredible reporting. Um, They've been on top of the Frito-Lay story like nobody's business. So the workers at Frito-Lay were working 12-hour days, 84 hours a week. People have died from being overworked. There was uh, barely a raise at all over a decade. It was like 40 cents or something like that. Uh, There's no climate control in the warehouse, and sometimes it was 100 degrees, and sometimes it was freezing. Just really, really, really brutal conditions. So the union uh, went on strike. Now, there has been a bit of a conclusion, but this is kind of underwhelming. They agreed to give everybody guaranteed one day off a week. The union agreed to it. I mean, listen, this is why you need better governance. I think it's time to implement laws on the maximum amount of hours that anybody could work per week. I think it's time for those laws because this is, uh, and that's ridiculous. They had to fight tooth and nail, and that was the settlement. That was the conclusion. So this Frito-Lay is just vicious. I mean, they really are. By the way, PepsiCo is their parent company. Well, now you're about to get your heart broken. So I'm going to warn you in advance, this is tough to watch. This is tough to watch. You're going to see the story of a worker at Frito-Lay who um, basically had his life ruined by the company. And how they reacted to it is outright criminal. Was you in a doctor where you press the button and it automatically does what it's supposed to do. I got electrocuted. I was taken to the ER, but the emergency room they took me to was 45 minutes away. We passed four hospitals on the way to the hospital they wanted to take me to. And the reason that it is is because they signed a contract with a certain hospital and a certain network. From the very next day after the accident, my husband was never the same. He was working really hard to even just get up on to the side of the bed. And usually he, like, hops out of bed and, you know, he puts his clothes on and he shoves food down his throat and he's out the door. You know, in 30 minutes, he was used to it. He was trained to do that in the service. When I say I was healthy as an ox, I was healthy as an ox. He just didn't have any answers. They said he should have been fine, but he wasn't. I didn't get any time off after the incident. Uh, I was... <sighs> I had to call off the next day. as a sick day. I told you I was in pain. I told you it hurts when I walk. And it was like, okay, you know, are you going to be here tomorrow? I was a slight lead, and I know what that entails. Your leadership is a whole warehouse, so if you have to fill in, you have to fill in. I for some type of relief, period, because I was still obligated to work, like, taking cases and unloading trucks or rotating product on a forklift. I asked for a chair that I could probably, that I could sit in that would make me more comfortable while I'm doing my office work. They denied it. You're either 100% or you can't work. It just felt like they were just trying to push me out. Eventually, I got an MRI by my primary doctor, and he showed that I had two herniated discs in my back. And he was like, you shouldn't be doing anything. They can only fix it with surgery. And my husband still had to work this whole entire time.
my neck because they were bulging into my spinal cord. I wasn't getting enough fluid to my brain. If I didn't have the surgery, the doctor said any small fall or accident or something like that, and I would have been paralyzed from the neck down or dead. I still have to have surgery on my lower lumbar spine. From the moment that he didn't work anymore and needed short-term disability, straight away, abandoned him. I had to file for short-term disability and then long-term disability. Got approved for long-term disability, but that was months later. So no income coming in. They require you to go to the doctor so many times, and the doctor has to say that you're in this condition over and over and over. But guess what? You don't have any insurance anymore through PepsiCo slash Frito-Lay because they cut you off. I had to pay for that out of pocket, too. You didn't have the money to do that. So guess what? I borrowed money or used credit cards or whatever I could. I even took money out of my kids. <laughs> had to take from our children to live. And the doctor knew what was going on, so he was like, look, just half of what you owe every visit, and we'll just take care of the rest later. I never wanted to have a lawsuit, just not me. But I did ask for help, and I wasn't getting it. Frito-Lay, Pepsi, Sedgwick, whoever has people following my family. They are stalking us. Just to find something to be like, oh, he's okay. Recording my kids playing in the yard, recording me doing yard work. They follow me in traffic on the highway, on streets. They follow me when I gave birth to my baby. They followed me to my daughter's school. I took my daughter out of school and decided to homeschool because I don't know if we're safe. I don't know how many people they've given our address and name and information to just to prove my husband wrong. They've done it for years. Why are you fighting so hard to say that I'm not hurt instead of just look at the paperwork, look at the medical stuff, look at everything I've been through? You would think that I'm a bad employee the way that everything has went. I've never done anything wrong to this company or even with this company. I have numerous awards to show that I'm not a person that you just throw away. I know the sales side, I know the operations side. I mean, hey, you could have just let me be a lead and just manage instead of physically working. Billion-dollar corporations like Pepsi, which owns Frito-Lay, they know this is happening to people, and they do nothing about it. My husband shouldn't have to fight for five years over something that took less than five minutes to impact our entire life. He pushed a button at work, a button he can't avoid pushing. He has to push it. It's his job. For a company that talks about diversity and culture and a family-oriented business, family don't just throw you out because you get injured. The company makes over $200 billion a year, okay? It's chips. But my husband is worth zero dollars to them because he's no longer able to push those chips. Damn. Now, um, the, the video is actually a little bit longer than that. I chopped off about a minute at the beginning and maybe a minute at the end. Um, definitely check out the full video. What do you even say? What do you even say? So PepsiCo, the parent company of Frito-Lay, the CEO makes about $15 million a year. Um, Brandon worked for Frito-Lay. He was electrocuted on the job. You heard him say it. He was taken to a hospital 45 minutes away. They passed a number of hospitals to get to that hospital. The reason they did that is because they had some sort of financial agreement arrangement with that hospital. Right off the bat, that's criminal. Um, he literally had to call out the next day and use a sick day after he was electrocuted. They denied him a chair at work. 
even though he basically couldn't work without a chair. He was in extreme pain. Maybe the most jarring part of that is actually that they could have given him an office job. They could have given him a position in management, but they didn't. They didn't do that. And so they wanted him to physically work after uh, an injury that basically made it so it was impossible for him to physically work. And they say Frito-Lay cut off his insurance when he needed it most. His insurance was cut off. There's so many problems that need to be addressed here. I mean, first of all, I, you know, I hope that in this lawsuit he wins and he gets a lot of money and that he's okay. Um, but a lot of this stuff needs to be addressed systemically. I mean, just you can see the problem with employer-sponsored health insurance with this story alone. I mean, I'm sure that's actually a relatively common story. Somebody gets hurt on the job, can't really work anymore, and they have insurance through the employer, but eventually the employer lets them go, and then they don't have health insurance. And then now also they have pre-existing conditions, so it's harder to get health insurance, or if you get, can get it, they jack up the rates massively. Do you not see the problem here? I mean, he goes on to say that you're a number to the company. You're property to them. His life was worth $0.00 and zero cents to them. And that, I mean, listen, that should give you a little bit of a light bulb moment. Moment of enlightenment there where you realize, like, oh, this used to be the position of the Republican Party in the 1800s, that wage slavery was not that different from chattel slavery. That one is you're owned by the boss, and the other one is you rent your labor on the marketplace to the boss. Owning and renting, I mean, it's different, but is it really that different? You ever leased a car versus owning a car? You ever rented an apartment versus, you know, owning something? Is, is it really that different? You're renting your labor on the marketplace. And they can basically tell you to do whatever, whenever, and the rules are really not there to protect you. Or if they are there to protect you, they're not enforced very well. And so at least when it comes to health insurance, too, they, they use this as a form of control. A lot of people feel like they can't leave a job because they have insurance through a job. Um, because they'd go through a period where they don't have insurance and they need the insurance. So sometimes people are trapped in shitty jobs as a result of it. But look how quickly they can discard you and throw you under the bus if something happens to you. You have health insurance to them, something happens, you can't work anymore, and then eventually they'll fire you and you don't have insurance anymore. How can anybody look at the system and say it's okay? Even just the profit motive in the system is obviously grotesque because you have a perverse incentive where the companies make more money the more they deny you care. So they try to reject claims as much as possible. I mean, this is, you guys know the story. We told you the story. Frito-Lay, they were working 12-hour days, 84-hour weeks. Some, some worked five months without a day off. In the other part of the uh, clip, Brandon talks about how he would work like that. He would work nonstop. Um, and it's just not rewarded. None of it's rewarded. And you're so disposable to them. His life was ruined on the job, and then they basically had nothing for him. Didn't let him keep his insurance. Didn't let him take a managerial job. Didn't give him a payout. Nothing. Threw him under the bus after he had given everything to them. And so, I mean, it's a disgusting, grotesque company, but it, this also is a story not just about Frito-Lay. It's a story about the nature of the system. It's a story about exploitative capitalism. 
It's a story about the absolute necessity of the government doing basic things like marketplace regulation and having rules. And, um, I mean, we got to get rid of the for-profit private health insurance model. It's, it's criminal. It's criminal. Everybody should just have health care paid for via taxes, single-payer Medicare for all system. Every other developed country has one version or another of a universal health care system. We got to do that, and we got to have stronger worker protections. You need a maximum amount of hours per week that people are allowed to work. Um, you need stronger protections for the sick and the disabled. They should have accommodated him, but they didn't. I don't know how much you could legislate them accommodating him, but you certainly can have better safeguards that when something like this happens, it ain't this bad, you know. But really, more worker power is everything. I mean, they have a union there, and they were still sort of rolled. So if it was a democratic workplace, perhaps things would have gone differently. Um, if they had better rules, perhaps things would have gone differently. The fact that the thing electrocuted him in the first place, how did, was that even allowed to happen? Is there no regulation of whatever the button is that he has to press? Are they that lax with it, with safety standards? Is that another issue here? looks like it might be. But I hope he wins his lawsuit, and we need better, better rules and better regulation and more worker power because stuff like, I mean, it's hard to watch this, man. Guy's life was ruined because he did his job, and then he was totally and utterly abandoned and spied on, as criminal as it gets. Okay, next. Nina Turner's election is fast approaching, and we have an interesting new story to share with you. So take a look at this. Newsweek says, with a week to go before the special primary election for Ohio's 11th congressional district, Democratic candidate Chantel Brown may be in hot water. In April, The Intercept reported that Brown, a Cuyahoga County council member, had voted to award millions worth of contracts to companies connected to her romantic partner and campaign donors. Emails reviewed by the Daily Poster show that the Ohio State Auditor's Office reviewed the allegations in the article and recently referred the matter to the State Ethics Commission. So it looks like there's some there there. Under Ohio law, public officials are prohibited from knowingly authorizing or using their authority or influence to secure authorization of any public contract in which the public official, a member of the public official's family, or any of the public official's business associates has an interest. Violation of the statute is a felony, and penalties can include prison time. They continue. In recent weeks, Brown's campaign and her efforts to paint Turner as a bad Democrat have benefited from high-profile endorsements from the Congressional Black Caucus PAC, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn. Brown has also seen strong support from corporate lobbyists and outside groups, most prominently DMFI PAC, a pro-Israel super PAC whose biggest donor is an oil and gas executive and an heir to a massive fossil fuel fortune. The corporate think tank Third Way, which recently endorsed legislation encouraging more states to cut federal pandemic-related unemployment benefits, entered the Cleveland race last week, dropping $250,000 on digital ads opposing Turner. By the way, since this article came out, we got the news that even more money is now being dumped in there to defeat Nina Turner at the last minute. They are throwing millions, millions out there to try to stop Nina Turner. Now, Nina Turner had like a 40-point lead, but Chantel Brown has now closed the gap. I think there was like a 20-plus point surge from Chantel Brown. She's still behind, but 
when you spend this much money and you muck up this much fake support and you got the big guns coming out to endorse you like Cliver and like Hillary, yeah, it did move the polls a little bit, for sure. So Nina's still the favorite. According to Chantel's internals, Nina's up like six, but I want a bigger lead than that. I'd be much more comfortable with a bigger lead than that. So now Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Cornell West and Keith Ellison, they're all campaigning for Nina which is a wonderful thing. They're doing a big event, which is a wonderful thing. And um, just hope that we can get over that finish line and we can have a, a, a decent victory because Nina in Congress would be big. It would be big because now you finally have somebody in there who has some leadership qualities along with the right policy ideas. I think we have a number of people in Congress who are Democratic Congress people who have the right policy ideas, but they really don't have that leadership ability and that leadership quality and they really don't have the thing that makes them feel okay if the media is shitting on them or leadership is shitting on them i think nina has that thing because she's been they've been coming after her forever and she's probably grown a thick skin to it where it's like okay come after me i'm still going to do the right thing so i think her being there would be huge um this story needs to get out there more that Chantel brown is under an ethics investigation for basically brazen corruption how much money was it $17 million that was shoveled into something that her partner runs or that he's profiting from? I mean, that's amazing. That is like rank corruption. That's high-level corruption. And for like a low-level Democratic politician, it's astounding how bad it is. I mean, that's terrible. So needs to be a bigger story. Absolutely needs to be a bigger story. Um, The other thing I'll point out real quick is that Uh, story broke this week that Chantel Brown was using fake applause at one of her events. Oh, that's the saddest thing I've ever heard. Oh, that's without a doubt the saddest thing I've ever heard. So um, she was at an event, and there were so few people there. I mean, maybe it was like 20 people there or something. And um, there there was like a DJ, and there were these big speakers, and when she would say something and like wait for the applause the DJ would press a button and you'd get the canned fake applause. I mean, that's a perfect metaphor for her entire campaign. You know, like the whole thing has just been totally and utterly propped up by big money and corporate Democrat elites. The whole thing. And what you have is one candidate who really wants to change things for the better and will fight for it. And another candidate who is all about business as usual and won't change a damn thing. And so they're trying to surge. They're trying to, like, prop her up and get her across the finish line. And listen, we don't know. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. But it's really depressing that the gap closed as much as it has. You know, I knew, I knew it would close. I didn't know it would close this much. It's really depressing to see it, you know. Um, for the love of God, if you're in Ohio's 11th district, please go out and vote for Nina Turner. Everybody do whatever you can to get Nina Turner elected. There, it is a night and day difference between Chantel Brown and Nina Turner, and um, couldn't be more obvious. Right on time, as predicted, guess what's happening, everybody? The Wall Street Journal is reporting U.S. intensifies airstrikes in Afghanistan as Taliban offensive nears Kandahar. About a dozen strikes are aimed at slowing a Taliban surge 
aiding a beleaguered Afghan military. So, um, you know, we've been saying it all along that uh, even though Biden is withdrawing, it's not really a withdrawal. It's a drawdown, but they're probably going to keep some private contractors there. They're probably going to keep some boots on the ground in order to train the Afghanistan military. And now air power is right back in. So I don't know if it's drones. I don't know if it's airplanes. I don't know if it's both. But U.S. is still in Afghanistan, and they're dropping bombs. In, in a world that made sense, there is no such thing as withdrawing but also doing airstrikes. That's not a thing. Like, you're not actually withdrawing. You're, you're doing airstrikes. You're still waging war. So we're still waging war. You could say it's good he drew down and pulled out of, um, you know, Bagram Air Force Base, but this is not a withdrawal by any stretch of the imagination. By the definition of the word withdrawal, this is not that. So, listen, it is absolutely true that the Taliban has been surging and has been taking over territory. Now, the other point that people haven't really made, though, is that this is all, you know, totally desolate, isolated area where, you know, it's poor villages that have zero defense. And that's not to say it's a good thing that the Taliban took it over, but it's going to happen no matter what. I think the fear now is if Kabul and Kandahar fall, it's like, oh, well, those are the big cities, and then you basically don't have Afghanistan, you have Talibanistan. So that's why I think they're doing it. Um, but having said that, I've made this point to you guys a number of times before. It doesn't matter if you withdrew in 2005, if you withdrew in 2008, if you withdrew in 2012, if you withdrew in 2016, if you withdrew in 2021, if you withdraw in 2042, whenever you pull out, this is going to happen. The Taliban is a guerrilla army, and they're in their own country. You're not going to outlast them and their will. So they could have taken over in 2006. They could have taken over in 2012. They could take over in 2021. They could take over in 2032. But they're going to take over at some fucking point. That appears to me to be inevitable. It's inevitable. And you can't tell me that this is about, you know, preventing terrorists from having a stronghold or preventing Sharia law because we care about the women and girls in Afghanistan because our top ally is Saudi Arabia. So you can't tell me it's about that because I know it's not about that because our top ally has a Sharia system in place and beheads people in the public square for sorcery and witchcraft and apostasy and all sorts of nonsense, drug smuggling. So you can't tell me that. So, of course, we always get to the question, well, why are we really there? It ain't about protecting anybody. It's not about democracy. It's not about human rights. I mean, the reason we're there is it's control of a vital region. When you look at the chessboard of the world, and we don't want the rise of Russia or the rise of China to happen, so it's a strategic area where we want to have control. So it's about geopolitics. It's about imperialism. It's about uh, the business of war, military-industrial complex. There's a lot of people who make a lot of money from war. It's also about the trillions of dollars worth of mineral wealth in Afghanistan. We want to keep our hands on that. Um, but again, your options are a U.S.-backed corrupt puppet government that has very little support, warlords with child sex slaves, or the Taliban. Those are your options as to who's going to control the country. There are no good answers. There are no good answers. And if the Taliban is going to take over whenever we leave, then you just should rip off the Band-Aid quickly. I mean, you should have ripped off the Band-Aid immediately. 
If you say, hey, it's not, 9-11 happened, we've got to go after Osama bin Laden, I say, I get it. But after you get Osama bin Laden, we're done so. But they always keep moving the goalposts. It's Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda. Okay, well, less than 100 al-Qaeda operatives are in Afghanistan, and that's according to our own intelligence agencies. Should we stay there to try to kill every single one of them? Well, it turns out that in the process of doing all these things, there was a rise of ISIS. So you could argue the war on terror had a backlash effect that was way worse than if we didn't even do the war on terror. So it's the exact opposite of success. This is demonstrable failure. And the old definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results, I mean, that's what's happening here. Oh, let's just go back in there. Let's just do a little bit more bombing. Let's stay a little bit longer. Let's do this. Let's do that. You know, Jordan Sheridan just released a story recently saying that um, in Flint, Michigan, they had poisoned water, and the government officials and the health officials wiped their phones to hide the conversations they were having at the time. Giant scandal of poisoning of an American city, and it was covered up, and nobody's talking about that. Nobody's trying to fix our infrastructure. Nobody's trying to fix the water. We have a number of places in this country where the water is basically poisonous. Nobody's trying to fix it. But instead, we're talking about we've got to protect Kandahar. It's a sick joke, right? Is that not a sick joke? Is that not a sick joke? We have a pandemic in this country, and we don't have universal health care. But we have $7 trillion to spend in Iraq and Afghanistan. $7 trillion. Not okay. It's not okay. And so Biden's right back in there. We pulled out, but we're not really pulling out. We're going to stay there. I mean, listen, the fact of the matter is it does look like, to one extent or another, we are just going to stay there forever. Even if you say, oh, it's just airstrikes or it's just help for Af- the Afghanistan military on the ground, it looks like there will be some presence forever. Nobody will ask how much it costs. Nobody will question the logic of it. It'll just be standard operating procedure. Um, we just got to keep our eye on the numbers. Hey, how many are actually staying there? What's the actual number? Is it 1,000 people on the ground? Is it 3,000 people on the ground when you include contractors and soldiers? Is it just air power? I don't know, but in a sense, you're sort of delaying the inevitable. And um, there's a lot of bad things going on around the world. And we can't stop all of them, nor do we actually want to stop all of them, nor are we some real protector of democracy and human rights. We're just not that. As soon as you dispel the myth in your own mind that that's what we're doing here, that we're acting as the world police and it's just and moral, then you realize how farcical this all is and how fraudulent this all is. Nobody's saying anything about the, you know, what's happening in Sudan or the Congo or the Rohingya Muslim population. Or we can go on and on with all the places where there's vicious, atrocities happening and ethnic cleansings and whatever. That stuff's going on all around the world. But focusing on this and acting like this is the end-all be-all and um, this takes precedence over any of the thousand serious problems we have here. It doesn't. It doesn't. But I don't expect that sort of a critical eye to be used from anybody who is in elite media. Okay.
Okay, next. Let's keep going. So, um, Joe Biden has announced the end of the combat mission in Iraq. Let me show you a, a little CNN international clip on this, and then we'll talk about it. The U.S. combat mission in Iraq will officially end by year's end. Now, during a meeting at the White House with the Iraqi Prime Minister, President Joe Biden stressed the U.S. is not turning its back on a strategic partnership. It's just to be available to continue to train, to assist, to help, and to deal with ISIS as it, as it arrives. But uh, we are not going to be by then here in a combat mission. Iraq has demanded an end to the combat mission, and the announcement makes the current status quo official. More details now from CNN's Awa Damon. U.S. forces will be remaining in Iraq, perhaps a change in semantics, no longer being called combat troops, but rather as an advise and assist unit. And this is what the Iraqi prime minister says his country needs. But it's not just ongoing training of the Iraqi security forces. What is also especially critical to Iraq is America's intelligence sharing and other capabilities. And it would seem that at this stage, nearly a decade later, both the U.S. and Iraq want to avoid what happened towards the end of 2011 under the Obama administration when, what many would say, a premature withdrawal of U.S. forces took place, which ended up being one of the many key factors that allowed for the reemergence of ISI, the Islamic State of Iraq, ISIS's predecessor, which then very quickly grew and morphed into the most formidable terrorist organization that we have seen to date. But this ongoing U.S. troop presence, despite what is being publicly said, is not just about training and assisting Iraqi forces. It's not just about an ongoing battle against ISIS, which does continue to carry out uh, devastating attacks in Iraq, albeit not to the same degree that it used to in the past. This is also about creating a counterbalance to Iran's growing influence, a counterbalance to the strength and power of the Iranian-backed Shia militias that many will argue are even more powerful than the Iraqi security forces themselves. They admit it. They just admitted it. That's amazing. So they're basically saying, we're not in Iraq for anything to do with Iraq or protecting democracy and freedom or any of the things we were sold is the original reason. Um, we're in Iraq because we want to stop the rise of Iran. So for those of you who don't know about Iraq, I mean, basically, it's a fake country. A lot of the you know, countries in the Middle East, the borders were arbitrarily drawn by Western powers in, in the recent past. And so 60% of Iraq are Shia, and about, about 40% are Sunni. Um, and, you know, Saddam Hussein, for the longest time, he was Sunni, and he ruled with an iron fist. He was a dictator. And so what they're afraid of, what the U.S. is afraid of is, oh, if we pull out the 60% that Shia, they're more aligned with Iran, and then you have Iran becomes a more powerful uh, area if they're aligned with Shias in Iraq, and um, there are consequences for that. We don't want uh, to put Israel in a position where they feel like there's, you know, an ascendant Iran, and they, they become a more powerful nation, and we need to blunt the rise of Iran by staying in this um, strategic geopolitical region. And 
it's an amazing admission because they never, ever, 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 ever would have admitted that previously. Remember, the original reason we were told we're going into Iraq, Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. And the implication was he's going to attack us any minute. Saddam Hussein's been dead for a really long time. And it's not like when he died, we were like, all right, time to come home. Well, you should have said that because you said that was the original reason we went in there. Actually, they said Saddam Hussein worked with Osama bin Laden to do 9-11. That turned out to be bullshit. Then they said he's got weapons of mass destruction. That turned out to be bullshit. Then he was, oh, my God, he's such a bad dictator. Well, that was true, but we also backed him at the height of his atrocities. So the idea that we cared about preventing atrocities is laughable. So think about it. They moved the goalposts a thousand times until eventually they were just like, I don't know, we're there to bring freedom and democracy or something. Shut the fuck up. Leave us alone. And now they're saying, okay, fine, it's about Iran. We want to blunt the rise of Iran, and so we want to stay there. Now they're saying, oh, the combat mission is over. But they're admitting nothing's over. They're saying combat mission means you're going to have a fewer number of people there. Uh, you're still going to have contractors there. You're still going to have the U.S. military there. They're going to permanently be there. And, you know, that has to be the case in order to keep security and prevent the rise of ISIS and prevent the ascendance of Iran. I mean, that's what they're saying. So how many times? I mean, you could go back. There are tweets still up right now from like 2012, the 2012 DNC and Obama and Biden speaking, or, or it's from like 2010 or some shit, and they say, by 2012, we'll be out of Iraq or we'll be out of Afghanistan. And it's like, we're almost a decade on past that, dog. And now Biden's president, and now we're still getting the Weasley mealy mouth. We're going to end the combat mission. <laughs> Seven trillion wasted in the Middle East. How'd that go? And by the way, I love the idea like, well, the rise of ISIS is because we pulled out. Maybe the rise of jihadism has to do with the fact that we funded it. We funded it under Reagan. We armed and propped up the Mujahideen who was fighting the Soviet Union, who was our enemy. So we helped spread radical Islam and we're best friends with Saudi Arabia and they spread radical Islam all around the world. It's what it is. That's what it is. So it's funny that we're like, Oh, the problem is the rise of it was because we pulled out. We broke the region in the first place and should have never gone in. The West should have never drawn the arbitrary borders. We should have never invaded and stayed since 2001, um, broke the region, led to a, a rise. Like, Al-Qaeda wasn't in Iraq until we went in there. So you have the blowback effect, and it's always worse. The thing that we say we're trying to fix is the thing we always make worse. So now we know. They did the fake withdrawal from Afghanistan. To be fair, they, drew, they did draw down. They left Bagram Air Force Base. That's good. Um, but now we're doing bombing, and we're probably going to keep a certain number of people there to train the Afghanistan military who doesn't want to be trained and doesn't have any allegiance to Afghanistan. Um, so we're going to stay there, and now we know we're going to stay in Iraq too, but we ended the combat mission. This is him wanting, wanting the, the popularity from ending a war while not actually ending the war. That's what this is. All right, next. So, Charlie Kirk has some thoughts on Simone Biles sitting out a team event. Uh, due to mental health, and she also said it's because she was incredibly nervous and she thought she'd mess it up for the team. So here's what he has to say. 
Simone Biles, who's obviously a very talented gymnast, decided not to compete in the gold medal competition. Now, she probably could have just competed and just kind of checked the boxes and they would have got a gold medal. Simone Biles says, this Olympic Games, I wanted to be for myself when I came in. And I felt like I was still doing it for other people, as she cried after the team event on Tuesday. So that just, it like hurts my heart because doing what I love has been kind of taken away from me to please other people. Yeah, that's the point, Simone Biles. You're representing your nation, you selfless, you're selfish sociopath. You kidding me? Today it's like, you know what? I'm not going to do something stupid and get hurt. It's just not worth it, especially when you have like three amazing athletes that can step up to the plate and do it. So you know who has the gold medal? Russia. Russia. I have to go look at these four foot eleven Russian Olympi- Olympians chewing on their gold medal, smirking at the Americans. I'm not okay with that. But honestly, that's where we're headed. We are raising a generation of weak people like Simone Biles. Again, if you want to be, if she got all these mental health problems, don't show up. And she's an incredible athlete. Of course she's an incredible athlete. I'm not saying, I just said she's probably the greatest gymnast of all time. She's also very selfish, she's immature, and she is a shame to the country. She's totally a sociopath. Of course she's a sociopath. Listen, you guys can go check the segment. I did a a separate segment on Simone Biles and the whole situation, and so you can see my thoughts on it there. Um, And I do have, like, an overall a mixed take on it. I could sort of see the argument for this is what courageous people and brave people do. They suck it up, and no matter what they have in their way, they overcome it. That's definition of overcoming adversity is to fight through when you don't feel like you can. So I see that side of it. But... This is nonsense. A selfish sociopath, a shame to the country. See, he doesn't at all see the other side of it. And the other side of it has a lot of good arguments, too. I mean, listen, the fact of the matter is this is the first time in history that athletes in various sports are just being open and honest about stuff. You know what I mean? Like, we're used to people, yes, uh, you know, put your chin up, put your chest out, and just sort of plow through and keep whatever inside. But now we have athletes, whether it's, um, I forget the name of the tennis player, Naomi Osaka, whether it's her saying, I have deep social anxiety and I couldn't deal with the media, so I'd rather not play in a major than deal with the media. That happened. Um, You know, we have this happening. There's also been a number of other instances in other sports now. Uh, You have a golfer by the name of Bubba Watson, golfer by the name of Matt Wolf. Bubba Watson's multiple major champion. Matt Wolf is a new guy on tour, but he's already won, and he's kind of a young hotshot. And he said, listen, I went through a five-month stretch where I was massively depressed. I had anxiety, felt deeply nihilistic, felt like none of this mattered, and I didn't want to fucking do it anymore. And so honesty is good for honesty's sake. Truth is good for truth's sake. And if these people are being more honest with us, well, that should be rewarded. That absolutely should be rewarded. And Simone Biles, in her commentary, did say a number of times, basically, like, number one, I sort of would have fucked it up, and I didn't want to fuck it up for them. And number two, I don't even really love this anymore. I mean, yes, it sucks, because we want to believe in the fairy tale. We want to believe in, like, the superhuman individuals who have one-track mind and can overcome everything. But Simone Biles is saying, that's a fucking fairy tale. And 
I don't think a lot of people are ready for that truth, and so they lash out like Charlie Kirk is lashing out here. But that's the reality, man. These people are people. They're human beings. And if she says, hey, I'm not even doing this because I like it. I'm doing it for everybody else. What advice would you give your kid if your kid came to you and said that? You'd probably be like, listen, you've got to do what you think is right. You've got to do what you feel is right. If you're miserable doing this, then go do some shit that doesn't make you miserable because all I want is for you to be happy. That's what you'd say to your kid. That's what you'd say to a family member. That's what you'd say to your best friend. But it just it, it happens to be the case that when somebody is already the GOAT and is in a prominent position, we don't want that to ever happen. And so we shudder at the thought when it does happen. And again, I get it. I get it. Because, yeah, I want to believe in that fairy tale, too, of the person who can overcome anything and has the one-track mind and is a warrior and no matter what can overcome. But as we're learning, even though there are people who've done that, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, etc., it's not what the public perception is that's the reality. Even with Tiger, he wanted to leave the PGA Tour at the height of his power to go be a Navy SEAL because his dad was in the military and he wanted to live, live that dream out. He was this close to leaving the tour when he was number one in the world by a mile and a half and he was the best maybe ever. Michael Jordan left in the middle of being the best ever to play baseball for a year in his prime. And listen, I get it. You know, I look at that and I'm like, eh, if he stayed, he would have won more. Um, and I know a lot of other people do too, but his heart wasn't in it and his head wasn't in it. And if he stayed, he probably wouldn't have won more because he didn't want to fucking do it. He didn't want to do it. So they don't owe us anything. And the other thing is, the Olympics is a scam. Like, nobody's talking about that. The Olympics is a scam. These assholes make billions of dollars. The athletes don't even get paid. This is bullshit. Just like, you know, the NCAA, how that's basically like these kids are exploited. That's what it is. So do you have a right, if you feel like it, to walk away from what's effectively a scam? Well, of course you do. Of course you do. Now, that wasn't her reasoning, to be fair, but... Um, Listen, she didn't want to do it. She didn't want to do it. She felt like she would have fucked it up, and she would have felt terrible if she fucked it up for her teammates. And so they want a silver. She feels like they probably would have done worse if she, you know, was there. So it's life, man, and life is messy. Again, I get it. I get the, the you know, like, buck-up side of the argument. I do. Because um, that is courageous, and that is brave to soldier on no matter what. But don't pretend like, there isn't a more nuanced, complex conversation to have here. And also, anybody who's had mental health struggles will tell you. The whole point of it is that it is totally and utterly uncompromising and doesn't give a fuck about whatever situation you're going through. You know, and if you have depression, if you have anxiety, if you have PTSD, if you have any of that stuff, there is no, like, you just fucking overcome it, bro. That's like somebody has cancer and you're like... Have you thought about not having cancer? Like, what? What are you saying? That's just dumb. So anyway, um, that's my breakdown of it. The only real issue I have is don't call her a selfish sociopath and don't call her a shame to the country because I don't think those things are true. If you want to make the argument like, hey, this is what we respect when people sort of fight on no matter what and can overcome it, I hear that point. I really do. But don't overreach and don't be a dick. But that's what they have. They have the argument where he's just a dick. Okay. Next.
So Fox News um, talked about Biden here and what's going on with Cuba. And what I'm amazed at is how relentless the lies are. Take a look. All right, thousands of Cuban protesters are rallying outside the White House and the Cuban embassy yesterday, demanding the administration take a stronger stance in their fight for freedom. But according to an op-ed in the Washington Post, quote, Republicans give Biden zero credit for his hard line on Cuba. They don't even admit it exists. Indeed, it's hard to imagine that Trump would be doing anything more to aid Cuban protesters than Biden is doing. There really isn't much we can do. Rubio Cruz and the rest must know that, but they don't care. Mere facts will not impede their effort to paint Biden as pro-Marxist. Our next guests are also gathering on Capitol Hill today for the CPAC Cuba Libre rally. GOP Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis is the daughter of Cuban immigrants, along with Florida GOP Senator Rick Scott and American Conservative Union Chair Matt Schlapp. Um, Matt, this is incredible to me because I was speaking with many Cubans, I've been doing that throughout the week, and they all say they do wish Trump was in charge, and they do think that Trump would have already had Internet and cell phone access going um, over the island and helping the protesters in that regard, in the very least. Yeah, this is completely wrong. And by the way, Rachel, thank you for your coverage of this uh, effort to bring freedom to the people of Cuba. The people of Cuba will one day be free. We just got to make sure we retain that freedom in America. And the fact is the Obama-Biden policies, which are now the Biden policies, are complete appeasement with the regime in Cuba. Remember, uh, Barack Obama thought it was good to have a beer and watch a baseball game right. uh, with Castro and not take the hard line. We have to deprive this regime of the financial resources. We have to give these democracy supporters access to the Internet, which is very cheap and we can do very affordably. And we need to project strength from America. It's America's birthright to stand for people who want freedom. Congresswoman, um, Matt makes a good point. Uh, you know, we know that the Obama, the former Obama uh, uh, members of his administration are running Cuba's policy right now for the, the Biden administration. Um, many of the protesters I talked to think that they're just waiting this out. They're just waiting for the protests to get squelched, um, for the Cuban government to end this, um, and, and, and for the Cuban influence and the Marxist influence to continue in, in the Western Hemisphere. That's absolutely correct. Just this is this is President uh, Biden's Berlin moment. Okay, right. compare what Ronald Reagan did in 1987 to what's going on here. Very stark comparison. It is so critical that the leader of the free world speak out and take a strong stance, rally democracies around the world to get this illegitimate regime out of Cuba and bring freedom. Remember, Cuba is aligning, and this is why it's important for America. Cuba is aligning itself with Iran, with North Korea, with China, with Russia. Right. They are spreading the socialist and communist propaganda to Venezuela, to uh, Bolivia, to Nicaragua. Here in the United States of America, we see a socialist movement. And as a matter of fact, during the protests last year, we saw the, the hammer and sickle, the communist symbol, painted on buildings in New York City. So it's spreading inside the United States as well, which is why if we end it in Cuba, we will end it in the, uh, the Western yeah. Hemisphere prevent it from spreading further. Yeah, Carson, there's no reason to believe that this isn't just deliberate um, appeasement of, of, of the Marxists, of the communists. Deliberate appeasement of the Marxists, of the communists. Joe Biden is doing deliberate appeasement of the Marxists, of the communists. 
I mean, it's hard to imagine that they don't know how much they're lying there, you know, because nothing could be further from the truth. Every single thing they said, that was relentless stream of lies for nearly four minutes. So let's walk through this. First of all, Biden is continuing Trump's policies on Cuba. So to say, hey, what would Trump have done differently? I mean, that's quite literal. Like, that's, he's doing exactly what Donald Trump did. He hasn't changed anything on the Cuban front. So what are you talking about? No, that's not true at all. So they think, oh, Trump would find a way to get people in Cuba internet? By the way, they go on to talk about how, oh, the issue with that is uh, if we try to do that, then uh, they might attack our, our Coast Guard boats. You're willing to risk U.S. Coast Guard boats to get internet to Cubans? Listen, I, I wish the Cubans well. They should have internet. It should be up and running. There shouldn't be authoritarian controls on it. But let's not kid ourselves. These are the people who said America first. And by the way, they were right about that. America first. Why are you not handling our own problems? We have places here with toxic water an infrastructure that's crumbling, and you want to get internet to Cubans? They threw America first right out the fucking window. So Biden could have gone right back to Obama's policies, but he didn't. What Obama did on Cuba was some of the best stuff he did. And Biden could have went right back to that, but he didn't go right back to that. He's continuing Trump's policies. The, you know, here's how, why I think they're lying, by the way. Because, they didn't, again, they didn't even mention the embargo in the whole segment. Nobody said anything about the embargo. We're continuing the embargo. If you talk about Cuba and you don't mention the fact that we have a, an embargo of them, you're either incredibly ignorant and should not be talking about this topic at all, or you're a liar. And you're lying by omission. You're leaving out the most important fact in the entire conversation. Somebody says, oh, he's soft on Cuba. Nonsense. He's way too hard on Cuba. Doing trust policies is way too hard on Cuba. Um... Then, I like when they say, oh, it looks like Biden's waiting this out so to get the protests squelched. The protests are already over. Now, listen, maybe some of that is because the government cracked down, and that's authoritarian, and that's not cool. If that is indeed the case, I totally condemn that. But the protests are over. In fact, there's way bigger counter-protests that you guys aren't even fucking talking about. Because really, the original reason for the protest was, we need more food. We need more medicine and medical supplies. In other words, things that lifting the embargo would directly fix. So if you actually cared about the Cuban people, you would lift the embargo. And then finally, the end it in Cuba and we'll end it here argument. And what here? We can't even get basic social democracy here. Never mind socialism. Never mind communism. There's a war being waged on the remaining remnants of the New Deal, and you're talking about communism's coming here because somebody spray-painted a hammer and sickle in New York City last summer. Fuck out of here. These people are ridiculous. Utterly ridiculous. Deliberate appeasement of the Marxists. Yeah, that's Joe Biden. That's Joe Biden. I'm sure we have a totally, you know, workers own the means of production in the United States. What is it? It's a, forget that. Even just, even just, public versus private in this country, like 13% of the country, maybe 15 at most of the economy is public. The rest is private. They're like, ooh, what a hardcore leftist. Right. The guy who um, supported fucking balanced budget amendments. The guy who under Obama, under their reign, they cut government jobs and expanded the private sector. That guy, hardcore leftist, Marxist, communist. 
Imagine knowing this little about labels and definitions and political science. They don't know anything. They don't know anything. But that's what I'm saying. That's why I think they're just lying here. This isn't just ignorance. This is like they're just liars. They're just total liars. Look at Joe Biden's record. And talk about Marxism and communism. The guy half agrees with Republicans. You know, look at his voting record, Patriot Act, bankruptcy bill, crime bill, you know, Iraq war. list goes on and on. I mean, this is a guy who is basically a moderate Republican. That's what he is. In Fox News fantasy land, that is equal to Stalin or some shit. Ridiculous. All right, final story of the day, guys. Final story of the day. So I'm going to react to um, the second secular talk video of all time. Um, Incredibly cringy. Oh, it's tough to watch this stuff. It really is. Nobody wants to see. I don't want to see myself doing anything, but I definitely don't want to see myself doing anything when I'm 20 years old and it's 2008 and I'm a smug, arrogant little asshole. Uh, not that I'm not that now, but it was definitely worse back then. So um, the title of this video is Take Back the Word Liberal. Let's watch and then I'll react. Hello, YouTube. Now, before I start making videos about the Obama campaign, the Clinton campaign, the McCain campaign, and everything that's going on in uh, the world of politics and everything else, basically, I wanted to... Take a second and make this video. There is almost no doubt that if you're liberal and you live in the United States, that at one point or another in your life, doesn't matter where you live, even if you live in New York, California, Massachusetts, even the most liberal states, there is no doubt that at one point or another in your life, you have probably come across somebody that has thought that just calling you a liberal was an attack, was an argument was something that's so negative that you would back off and say, whoa, 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 I'm not liberal. There's no doubt that that's probably happened to you if you're a liberal. Now, that's clearly a product, as I'm sure you guys already know, of the constant demonization of the word liberal by the right wing over the years. It really has gotten to the point that most people think it's a negative thing to be called liberal. Like, the cool thing is to be conservative now is to associate your name with the word conservative. So, I wanted to take a second out to actually bring an understanding back to the American people of what the word liberal actually means. Because clearly people don't get it anymore. Now, the American Heritage Dictionary defines liberal as not limited to or by established traditional, orthodox, or authoritarian attitudes, views, or dogmas. Free from bigotry. Their second definition is favoring proposals of reform open to new ideas for progress, and tolerant of the ideas and behaviors of others, broad-minded. The third definition, tending to give freely, generous. Now, do we really want to demonize those characteristics? Is it really such a bad thing to be uh, free from bigotry or broad-minded? Because if you really think that those things are bad, I'm sorry, but you're really not that smart. Now, I took it a step further also. And I looked up the word conservative. Now, the one definition that I found in the American Heritage Dictionary that's worthy of repeating here is favoring traditional views and values 
tending to oppose change. Now, for one second, let's think about what this means. Pretend we live in the 1950s, okay? Now, what would it mean to be a conservative in the 1950s? Well, since you tend to oppose change, what that would mean is that you don't think black people should have civil rights, and you don't think black people, or women too, I guess you could say, they probably want women to just be in the kitchen and do their thing in the kitchen and have no, uh, no business career or real career outside of the family life. But you don't want black people to have civil rights, and you want black people to be able to vote. Before everybody goes crazy, let me just say that the fact that I'm saying this does not mean I'm stereotyping or prejudging or anything like that. What I am doing is taking the standard definition of the word conservative and applying it to a period of time where, by definition, if you were conservative, you would have had to believe that black people are basically less than you. And we're talking about the 1950s here. This isn't that long ago. This is like 50 years ago. I mean... Okay. <laughs> God, I hate watching old stuff of me. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it so much. Okay, so a um, few things. Let's go from the beginning and down. You heard me say at the beginning there, before I get into the Obama campaign, the Clinton campaign, and the McCain campaign. So that's how, that's how old this is. That's how old this is. This was before Barack Obama was president. So yet again, my reaction is like, damn, I've been in the game for a long-ass time. Now, again, there was a, a period there where I didn't do secular talk. I got, I, got, I got a political science degree, and then I went out there in the real world and tried to get a real job. And I was, uh, you know, I worked uh, as a car salesman for a year and a half or something like that. And so there was a, a big gap there where I didn't upload anything really to the channel. But then in 2012, late 2012, probably, I, I started to try to do it full-time after I left the the car dealership. And there's an interesting backstory to that too. One day, maybe I'll get into that. Um, but that's it. But this shows, at least as a hobby, I had, have been doing this for so long. Um, the Rush Limbaugh point, or excuse me, it's not the Rush Limbaugh point. I jotted down Rush Limbaugh here. The point I'm making about liberal and how it has a negative connotation, in my mind, that was basically because of Rush Limbaugh and Fox News, because they really did succeed. I I think it's true what I'm saying there, that they really did succeed at demonizing the word liberal. And they did it with just relentlessly, you know, besmirching liberals and smearing the word liberal and, you know, saying it as if it's almost like a slur. And there was a, a long period where nobody really called themselves a liberal. Nobody did. Now, what's interesting watching this in retrospect is that, like, Five or, or between five and seven years later after this video, liberal actually came back in style where a lot of people started identifying as liberals. And it's funny how the pendulum swings over time. And at one time it was totally unfashionable, then it became fashionable again. And now I think we're getting to a time yet again where now it's a little more unfashionable to call yourself a liberal. Um, you can kind of see how I'm like, latching on to a, a persona and, a, and an identity there it's so gross to see you know like I hate my smug faces I hate my like attempt to copy Bill Maher's talking style which is definitely something that I did for a long time subconsciously uh, you could totally see it when you look back um, 
I hate how arrogant it sounded when I said, I want to bring an understanding back to the American people about what liberal means. Like, bitch, 17 people are going to watch this video. You know what I mean? Like, it's my second video ever. On what planet can I say, bring an understanding back to the American people? Like, what? So that was hilarious. Uh, I also think my New York accent is even worse back then. I think the further back you go, the more you can hear a New York accent when I talk. Now, I probably still have it. In fact, I definitely still have it to some extent, but um, it's not, I don't think it's nearly as bad as it was then. So I'll let you guys judge on that one. Um, I think the best point I made there is when I said, really, if you're conservative at any point in history, if you go back, look at the definition of conservative and what it means. One of the definitions is, you know, abiding by tradition and thinking things should stay relatively the same. Don't do too much change. If you apply that definition at any point in history, it's sort of like embarrassingly dumb. You know, like if you are a conservative in the 1950s, you sort of want women and black people to know their place and know their role and stay in that hierarchy, you know. Um, and that's 1950. We go back to 1880, what does a conservative believe? You know what I mean? So think about it in the context of today. In the context of today, a conservative in America would believe, you know, capitalism for sure is the best system and, and it would be insane to be without it and try something different. And, um, you know, they think the U.S. is in its rightful place as the world's sole empire. Like all those beliefs were common. They're common. We're used to hearing them. But they're also fucking insane. And if you look 50 years in the future, and then you look back to this, you'd be like, yeah, that was crazy. That's as crazy as thinking like segregation makes sense. It is. So um, I think that point is actually true about conservatism, that if you take that definition of it and apply it, at any point in time, if you look back and think, look at what the conservatives believed, it was kind of embarrassing in retrospect. That's not to say that progressives or lefties or liberals always get it right in how they want to do new things, but at least they know, hey, we can't keep it like this. We've got to improve shit. We've got to try to change some shit. So I do think that that point is probably um, the best point I made there. Gee, it's so tough to watch these old, these old clips. I never want to see anything I do, but definitely not this stuff, because it's like it just reminds you of the whole process all the way along, like for a long time, for those of you who don't do any public speaking, let me try to explain what this is like. And actually, comedians have said similar things. Um, for a long time, you have to like, it's sort of like riding a bike. You have to like get used to it and get better and better and better. And when you start, you're basically just trying to like latch on to a persona and a, and a, and a way of talking and a way of being. And then over time, once you're comfortable enough and you're used to it enough, you can shed the, the comfort blanket of latching onto other people's personas. And I definitely had that with Bill Maher, probably a little bit of Tom Hartman influence in there. Later on, probably a little bit of Jank, you know. Um, and you'll notice this with every, like, if you go back to old Young Turks videos, you'll see everybody said they copied a, a, a verbal tick that Jank had where he would say, right, at the end of every sentence. And there was a time period where everybody at TYT would do that. And they did that because everybody sort of has that thing when you do public speaking a lot. It's not, you're not just able to go out there and immediately be yourself. You don't even know who the fuck you are. 
like you latch onto a persona and then eventually you're able to outgrow the persona and become yourself. And I, maybe it's not just like this with public speaking. Maybe that's a common thing with life, you know, and in any field you're in, it's sort of like how to fake it to make it. And it's like imitation is important and then eventually you can outgrow it, but you got to start somewhere, you know? Um, it's like, it's like a professional athlete, take a basketball player trying to copy the form of Kobe or Michael Jordan or LeBron. It's like, they started out just copying them every time they shoot, and then eventually they can generate their own feel and their own ability and their own form that's slightly different. It's a similar thing with public speaking. So when you see it, and it's like really early infant stages, oh, man, it's hard to watch. It is really hard to watch. So there you have it. Um, let me know if you guys like these sort of embarrassing segments where I look at embarrassing stuff I said and did. Uh, in terms of looks, I could, you could definitely tell I've aged, you know, there's no doubt I age. My face is so much slimmer then. And that's, oh wait, so I was 20 years old then. I'm 33 now. So I, you could definitely tell that I've aged, but the audio quality is not great, but I'd be interested to know people think my voice aged a lot as well. That I don't know about. I feel like I sound very similar, but anyway, there you have it. More very, very embarrassing stuff about me. Oh, wait, one more point. I forgot this. I forgot to tell you guys this. I, there was a time where I used the, the label liberal. Then there was a time I used the label progressive. Um, then I sort of eventually grew into social democrat, because I believe in social democracy, or populist left. That's sort of the most recent iteration. And even, listen, according to one political test, I'm a, a libertarian socialist. So ultimately, in terms of labels, there's a million of them that apply to me and there's a million of them that don't apply to me. But fundamentally, I don't think the conversation is all that um, productive and fruitful in the first place. Like, I do think labels sometimes get in the way and make people become more tribal. And so I don't know how much I would how much stock I'd put in a word, in a label, in my commentary today. Whereas back then, this was, you know, before, this was more partisan Kyle, more rah-rah Democratic Party Kyle. It's a very, you know, it's a much less evolved ideology. And a lot of the stuff hadn't happened. Obama hadn't even president yet. So you got to remember, we're coming off of the Bush era there, where it really did appear like Republicans are just bad and Democrats are just good. So you got to remember that um, historical context as you watch that. And, yeah, I guess I just don't put as much stock in the conversation about labels anymore. They're useful to some extent, but they're not too useful. So I don't know how much stock I put in that conversation anymore. But either way, there are parts of the commentary that I thought made sense, and there's parts that were so-so. Okay. All right, guys, we are done, baby. Oh, actually, fuck, no, I have to do one more. God damn it. This will be quick. I just want you guys an update on the vaccine situation. Here we go. So the CDC came out yesterday and said that vaccinated people should start wearing masks now. And there's a lot, I mean, listen, I follow a lot of people on Twitter and a lot of people who are anti-vax or leaning in the anti-vax direction, they basically were 
doing a victory lap over this and acting like, well, this is proof that the vaccines don't work. And you'd be surprised at how many people um, believe that and were arguing that. It was kind of astounding. Um, now, I do think that the CDC has done, and the FDA and just the government and the health officials have done a terrible job because they always flip-flop and reverse course. And then you can say, oh, they're evolving with the science. But oftentimes, no, they make decisions that weren't based on the science and pretend like it's based on the science. Um, so I don't think they've done a great job. And I don't think they did a great job explaining what's going on now as to why people need to wear masks, even if they're vaccinated. But that's why I wanted to talk about this, because I wanted to explain what, what is really going on based on my reading of the situation. So it's actually very simple. The reason why vaccinated people uh, should be wearing masks now is because you have the ability to spread the virus to others. And that's what we're learning, is that that's happening more than they originally thought. And it's probably because of this new variant that it's happening more than people thought. Now, does that mean vaccines don't work? No, because, and I'll, you know, I'll bring up the stats on this, 99.2%, 99 99.2% of COVID deaths in the U.S are from unvaccinated people. So it's still almost only unvaccinated people who are dying from the virus. Vaccinated people are not dying in large numbers from the virus. So let me give you some context to that. Now we're at the point where 163 million Americans are vaccinated, right? That's a lot of people. That's half the country, basically. Fully vaccinated, I should say. Um, you know how many people have died out of the 163? Uh, 63 million. So how many people have gotten the vaccine and then died? 4,100 people. And by the way, the, the details are actually a little are more interesting than that. The total number of individuals who died after contracting COVID-19 despite vaccination is 750. So in other words, only 750 out of the 4,115 people actually died from COVID after getting vaccinated from COVID. And by the way, there are people who are really old. So the data that we have up to this point, to be fair, June 25th was when this data came from. 750 people who have been vaccinated out of 163 million have died from COVID. So the likelihood after you get the vaccine of dying from COVID is just astronomically tiny but it goes even further, even getting severe illness is unlikely to happen. So that's the point that um, people are sort of glossing over. They think that, oh, since vaccinated people can spread the virus, that means that these vaccinated people are sick. And that's actually not the case. Vaccinated people who are spreading the virus are asymptomatic. They have no symptoms or they have super mild symptoms or it's just like a cold. So, and I don't think the CDC stressed that point enough because now people are taking the fact that vaccinated people should wear masks and they're assuming that means that they're saying the vaccines don't work and you're going to get really sick, maybe get severely ill or be hospitalized or die, even if you get the vaccine. And that the number of people who have gotten fully vaccinated and then died from COVID, it's so tiny. So the vaccines still work. It's just now we know that you can be fully vaccinated and asymptomatic or have very minor symptoms and spread it to others. 
probably because of the new variant makes that the case. So anyway, that's the reality of the situation. I wanted to get that out there because I'm amazed at how many people are just sort of misinterpreting it and running it, running with it to suit a narrative, to suit an anti-vaccine narrative. So anyway, go get the fucking shot. The more people that get the shot, the fewer people are going to die, the fewer people are going to be hospitalized. That is a fact. All right, guys. Love y'all, baby. I'll talk to everybody soon. Have a great rest of your day. Peace.